Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Fatima Sayed. Freelance journalist, host of The Backbench from Canada Land Podcasts, recently re-elected National Director of the Canadian Association of Journalists. Welcome back to Shortcuts. Hi, Jesse. It's, uh, it's nice to be back. I wish it was under different circumstances. These are the worst circumstances. Uh, we're going to talk about the terrorist attack in London, Ontario, that you and other journalists covered, and whether or not we are finally going to do something in this country about violent white radicals. And we are going to talk about the tweets and the Facebook posts that finally got me to pay attention to Kim's convenience. Wait, so you haven't seen a single episode? Not a single episode. Oh my goodness. Okay. Welcome back to Shortcuts. <laughs> Let's do this. This episode is brought to everybody by Clay Underhill, Robin Connolly, Louis-Pierre Gosselin, Jeremy Ladon, Larissa Rinkoff, Jillian McDonald, Luke Peters, and Matt. Hi, I'm Matt, a freelance animator in southeastern Ontario. I support Canada Land because I also support bigger media outlets that often suck. And Canada Land sucks far less often. So it only seems fair. 
Today, the outpouring of grief in London, Ontario, following the killing of a Muslim family of four, as police have said, motivated by hate. This time, it's a 20-year-old suspect accused of murdering the family simply because they're Muslim. The community is crushed by the deaths of Yamna, her parents and her grandmother. Her nine-year-old brother, the lone survivor, remains in hospital. It has been an absolutely heart-wrenching day in this community. And take a look here as we're standing at the site where the family was killed. And this crowd has really been growing by the minute here tonight. Fatima, I don't think that this news story we're going to talk about requires much of a setup. I think everybody knows what happened. I made the mistake of checking Twitter before I went to bed on Sunday, and I saw this little news alert that there had been an incident in London, Ontario. People were dead. It involved a vehicle, and the police did not think it was an accident. And I had just that sinking feeling of, like, this is not going to be good, and it was not good. This was a, a racist killing of a beautiful family, three generations, Salman Afzal, his wife, Madia, their daughter, Yumna, and the grandmother of the family, uh, 74-year-old Talat. Uh, all four of them were killed. There is a survivor, the youngest member of the Afzal family, Fayez. 20-year-old Nathaniel Veltman is in police custody. He is the accused. He hit this family allegedly on purpose in a truck. He was found shortly thereafter wearing like military gear, like a bulletproof vest or something. Yeah, I'm not sure. Police sort of described it as a armor-like body vest. Fatima, you reported this story for The Guardian. I wish that your first byline for The Guardian was under better circumstances. This is a horrible story for everyone. I think it's uh, particularly and specifically horrible for members of the Islamic community in Canada, of which you are a member. Uh, covering this while dealing with that is something I want to just at least recognize as a difficult part of your job. There were issues around identification. The police statement withheld the names of the family. There was a photograph of the family that was going around. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about some of the sensitive issues and the particularities of getting this information out as you were trying to deal with the story itself. So I actually came to the story much later than you did. I was at a car mechanic at uh, 3 p.m. on Monday, and I was in their, like, waiting area, and the TV was on to CP24, and that's when I first saw the news. And it was that moment when London police called it a hate-motivated attack. They said it was premeditated, and that was shocking I've never seen police come out so quickly before declare that an attack on a group of Muslims was a hate-motivated attack, which, you know, we can get into the questions about how do they know, because I, I would still love to know how the police were able to make this assessment really quickly. They haven't revealed that information or revealed what evidence they have to prove that this was premeditated and, and hate-motivated. And then I got an email from The Guardian asking if I would write this for them. And of course, I did. One of the struggles as a Muslim journalist is it's very hard to say no to stories like this. Part of it is because you know how bad the coverage can be. It's an almost better me than some, sorry to say this, but some white reporter who might make a mistake. Mm -hmm. And then I saw the photo of the family and they, they were me. The clothes they were wearing, the way they looked, the photograph, the way they were photographed, the evening walk after dinner, all of it. That was me. That was me, my dad, my mom, my grandmother. 
so yes, I did write my first story in The Guardian with shaking hands. And it was a little complicated because there was, as is the case often with breaking news, it's very chaotic. So the police hadn't released the names. And the police said in the press conferences that, you know, we'd appreciate not using the names. So in those first few hours, I think all reporters didn't use the names. But then there was a photo. One of the things you have to understand about Canada is immigrants are like related by a stone throw away. Like, it's very easy to find a connection. You know, the next day, my mom was telling me that we know the family through a friend of a friend's sister or a cousin's cousin, you know. So it's very easy to find a connection Mm -hmm. to immigrants who move here. So the WhatsApp groups, the group chats started flooding with information, and it wasn't hard to get their names. It just automatically came to you. So I had their names very early on, but the police had asked us not to use it. So I think me and all the reporters decided not to use their names. But then some family friends and, you know, people who knew families from a distance started sharing their photos. Those of us in touch with the friends of the family who had, who became de facto spokespeople asked us not to use their names, asked us not to share photos because they wanted privacy. They didn't want a media swarm at this difficult time. You know, there's an unspoken agreement, at least among the reporters that I worked with on this story, that, you know, we're all going to follow the same page. So I know there was a lot of communication between me, reporters at Global, who were, you know, asking back and forth, like, are you going to use the names? Are you going to use the photo? Like, what did you hear from the family friend? And, and so forth. So there was a lot of communication between reporters to make sure we were all doing the same thing. It's hard, though. We tried to be as respectful of the family's wishes as possible, but Social media makes that really hard. So you saw the photo everywhere. And then, you know, we tried to delete the photo. Like, I know I tried to delete the photo once the family's message came very clearly. Like, please, please, please help us do whatever you can to give them privacy at this time. So we tried. And then, of course, a day later when things were already out there and a loving family friend set up a GoFundMe page with all of their information without realizing that that meant that media could use any information on the GoFundMe page was suddenly like frantically, you know, texting us uh, as reporters and being like, please don't use their names yet. I made a mistake <laughs> and, and so forth. So it was chaotic, but I think it was all well-intentioned. Do we as reporters in the time of social media and rapid digital news, how do we give this family the space and the privacy they need to deal with the most horrific of circumstances? I mean, it was going to get out. And like you say, the information had already gone four times around as journalists were having that conversation. The photo is heartbreaking in and of itself. And it shouldn't matter that they're so beautiful. You know, if they were not so beautiful, it's still equally horrific. It shouldn't matter that they look so happy and loving and proud. Like so much comes through in the photo. Reading about them, and they're such remarkable people, to read about how the mother, Medea, was the only woman in this engineering program and was a PhD scholar and how Afzal was a physiotherapist working long-term care, just how beloved they are. This is part of a grieving and remembrance, but whoever they were, We shouldn't need to humanize people with these specificities for this to matter. And yet it is the photo that cuts through. And and then you think, I know it's been cropped out, the photo of the sun in more recent iterations. But when I saw the first photo and knowing that he survived, this nine-year-old, and oh my God. I think, you know, to your point about like, it doesn't matter what they look like. I think it does. And I hate that it does, but it does. Because when you look at a photo like that, they don't. Again, I hate that I'm saying this, but they don't look like Canadians, 
right? You look at that photo, she's wearing a Pakistani shawar kameez. I can tell they're dressed for Eid or they're dressed for, you know, some fancy Pakistani dinner party. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the dad was wearing a Pakistani kurta shawar as well. Like, they don't scream Canadian. They scream Pakistani. They scream Muslim. And I think that's the point, right? One of the things we as a Canadian media industry struggle with all the time is how do we actually speak about Canada and Canadians in all of this? You know, if police hadn't come out and said that it was a hate-motivated attack, reporting on this would have been much more chaotic. Mm -hmm. And I can say that definitively because we've seen that happen before. We've seen that with Danforth. We saw that with Quebec. We saw that in Alberta when, when Muslim women's hijabs were being pulled off. It gets complicated to identify such physical violence if it doesn't come from an authority, which is why when the police comes out and says it, that's it. You know, the police said it. You can cite the police. You can put it in quotations and you can call this what it is. This case is really interesting for me after seeing so many things be reported on when it comes to Islamophobia and, and hate motivated attacks where we had authorities calling it what it is for the first time. And that was a game changer. Let's do what we do here and have a look at the coverage. And I want to start just by jumping off from a tweet that Globe and Mail columnist Doug Saunders put out where he uh, talked about how kind of bracing it is to realize that, uh, quote, Canada's fringe media develops the economy of ideas that justify attacks like this. Dude, you write for the Globe and Mail. The Globe and Mail published Ezra Levant two years ago in a piece talking about how Ezra Levant's opinions need to be heard as well. I know that members of the mainstream media in Canada want to put in a box the rebel with its relentless Islamophobia that goes like directly into building the case of white grievance that leads to these murders. But it's not just the rebel. The Globe and Mail published Margaret Wente with column after column that feeds into the same ideology. Mark Stein, who is cited in the Brevik Manifesto as a mainstream Canadian voice in McLean's, the National Post. Our editor, Jonathan Goldsby, went through the London Free Press. This occurred in London, Ontario. They aggregate and republish content from the Toronto Sun. Goldsby went and rounded up a lot of the Islamophobic content that the mainstream post-media newspaper in London, Ontario, has been running in recent years. There's people who are going to be upset that I'm pointing fingers. It is a big deal to point a finger after something like this happens and point a finger at Rex Murphy and point a finger at the biggest newspaper chain in Canada, Post Media. I am pointing that finger. Like the same day that newspapers were covering this, they ran a Rex Murphy column in which Rex Murphy scoured the internet and pulled a unattributed anonymous comment that basically is, isn't anti-white racism a big problem too? He had to go online and look for anti-white racism. Muslims in Canada don't have to go looking for racism. Like Rex Murphy is saying that there's an equivalency here. And what is the M103 debate about? Which Post Media has said again and again, we don't need to single out Islamophobia in this bill, M103. So you pointed this out to have these words of comfort from Aaron O'Toole, Right. Or to have Justin Trudeau talk about how this is terrorism when Justin Trudeau won't decry Bill 21 in Quebec when he's asked just hours later if it fosters discrimination and hatred and Trudeau says no, it doesn't. It's funny that you said earlier how helpful it is for reporting to have the authorities, and in this case the cops, very quickly saying this was a racist attack. 
the Toronto Sun picked up the reverse in this case. The London Free Press headline was targeted for their faith as a statement, an assertion of fact. They were targeted for their faith. The Toronto Sun picks it up, targeted for their faith, question mark. And Goldsby Riley points out this may be the first time the Toronto Sun didn't accept a police statement at face value. Can I tell you the most heartbreaking thing that I heard from all of my conversations in and around London this week? It was the fact that members of the Muslim community, and all of them said this without being prompted, they all said that we're done with words because our hearts can't take any more tragedies. And there have been too many in the past four years since the Quebec mosque shooting. And all of them will say, when the mosque shooting happened in Quebec, we heard all those words. We heard the same words we're hearing today. And then, you know, several months and years later, Quebec passes Bill 21. So those words really meant nothing. And the thing that they will point out when I ask them, what action do you want the government to take? Or what actions do you want Canadians to take? Right at the top of their list is... We wish that all these media organizations and media platforms that spread hate or that give space to hate and Islamophobia would figure this out because that is incredibly dangerous. And this is without prompting. They want Canada to somehow figure out how dangerous it is to give space to such ideologies and such rhetoric because it spreads we're now in 2021, and if we don't understand exactly how something in a newspaper or something on a website can spread to a kid in London, I'm not saying that it did, I'm, I'm doing a hypothetical, then we really don't understand how the internet works, and that's a whole other problem. But it hurts my core to hear members of the Muslim community know exactly what the problem is. And they can tell you every article, every column that has hurt their community deeply because Islamophobia and hate doesn't happen in a vacuum. These things add up. They become bigger and deadlier. And as an industry, we really need to think twice about both sidism. What is the value of that? How does that add to the discourse? How does that impact the community? Because if journalism was a public service, then we are doing a huge disservice to a huge sector of the Canadian population by inadvertently, if not consciously, spreading these ideas and this hate. It's not about identity politics or these buzzwords, or it's not about being woke. It's about life and death. And if Rex Murphy, if he does not have a fucking word in his thesaurus to make it make sense to him how absurd it is to equate anti-white statements that he has to go searching for on the internet to murder. I absolutely agree with that sentiment that the media, and if Rex Murphy can't figure that out, we got to take that to his editors. But I'll go further than that because you say, what is the government supposed to do? I don't want to hear Justin Trudeau, oh, it's the headline that he calls it terrorism. What are you going to do about the terrorism? What is the anti-terrorism? Because I'll say this, unfortunately, I've said this before, and I'll probably have to say it again, but the next terrorist killer in Canada is known to someone listening to this podcast. We can build the profile. We know what they look like. They look a lot like me. It's a guy. He's white. And he's probably said some shit. He's probably made you feel a little bit uncomfortable with some of his comments. He might have a thing for military paraphernalia or firearms. And we need to snitch on these guys. What is the anti-terrorism strategy in Canada? I feel very powerless as a journalist right now, but what I hope to encourage journalists to do is to 
well, frankly, do their job a little bit better because we have done a terrible job holding policymakers to account when it comes to these forces, right? We forget the history of Islamophobia and hate in this country, not just as journalists, but as Canadians. You know, someone said to me, denialism of racism in Canada is pathological. And I agree with him. And I think it extends to the media institution. Whenever something like this happens, we treat it like it happens for the first time. And we forget that the Quebec mosque shooting happened before Christchurch in New Zealand. It actually influenced Christchurch in New Zealand. We forget the fact that white supremacy was in Canada before Trump was elected. We forget the fact that there are stories of physical violence against racialized communities every other week. And we just, we don't hold leaders to account. It's literally the least journalists can do, which is to hold these leaders to account for stopping the most evil of forces that are literally killing Canadians. I... I'm so grateful that in 2021, there are so many more Muslim journalists in this country. I am so grateful that there's someone like Janela Massa on CBC who went on national primetime yesterday and said, I might get in trouble for saying this, but Aaron O'Toole condemned terrorism today, but he voted against M103. Is anyone going to ask him about that? It shouldn't have taken Janela Massa a hijab-wearing Muslim anchor on CBC who is bound to get a lot of hate to merely hold policymakers to account over their lack of action on hate and Islamophobia, which has now completely destroyed a family and a community for the nth time in this country. We have to, as a country, realize this is as important as COVID. It is as necessary to talk about as education or health. And we're not talking about it. There is no such thing as a race reporter. And yes, there shouldn't be. But in this moment in time, when Canada can't even look in the mirror and say, hey, we kind of suck. Can you imagine if there was a race reporter on Parliament Hill right now, Jesse? I have a list of questions I would ask the prime minister if I ever had the chance. And at the top of it, it's hate and Islamophobia. And I don't want that to be at the top. I actually want climate change to be at the top because I consider myself to be a climate reporter. Why is the burden on racialized reporters to fill in these gaps? All right, you know the drill, Fatima. We duly note stuff. And I want to duly note some comedy advice for John Ibbotson. John Ibbotson, not to be confused with Iveson, Ibbotson, five years ago, five, Fatima, he tweeted a link to one of his Globe and Mail columns, and he put in brackets that it was for subscribers, but the way he said that was for subs. And, you know, some jackass on the internet said, oh, it's for subs? Is that some sort of coded message to the BDSM community? <laughs> 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 Sorry, I have nothing but laughter. <laughs> to, to which, to which, John Ibbotson responded, no, I fully support Israel. Um, uh, John Ibbotson uh, conflating, conflating uh, the BDSM community with the boycott, divestment and sanctions, the BDS uh, movement. What a what a fool John Ibbotson was, laughed all of the people on the internet. No, no, Fatima. He was kidding. 
or so he claimed. I'm I, I'm totally willing to believe him that he was kidding five years ago that he was willing to play the fool, which, as I've said before, when John Kay uh, rubbed dog shampoo into his hair and told the world about it, that's cool, man. Make fun of yourself on the internet. Play the fool. Let everyone have a laugh. It works really well when your persona is, I'm a serious columnist, and everyone can laugh at you, and that's a generous thing you're doing to brighten everyone's day in these miserable times in which we live. Why the hell am I talking about this five years later? Well, it's because someone else last week and her name is also Fatima Saeed. It's a little different. S-A-I-D. Are you sure it wasn't me? <laughs> Fatima Saeed somehow unearthed this five-year-old John Ibbotson tweet and said, I'm dying of laughter at this. And it went mega viral just last week. And reviewing this, all I thought was, like, why did John Ibbotson respond the way he did? Because the way he responded was... He tweeted, note to self, never try this kind of joke on Twitter again, ever. <laughs> Maybe John Ibbotson isn't as funny as you think, Jesse. Maybe he just doesn't understand humor. <laughs> I'll tell you exactly what happened. It's the same thing that John Kay did. They made a joke at their own expense, and then it worked too well. Too many people were laughing at them in exactly the way that they intended to be laughed at. But it went too big, and everyone was like, wow, you really are an idiot, aren't you? And then they broke the spell. They broke the joke and they said, come on, guys, I was only kidding. That's not how you handle that, John Ibbotson. You run with the joke. You're It's succeeding. It's working. Take it as far as you can, John Ibbotson. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs> Duly noted. What do you have? I don't have like an article or a tweet like you um, to duly note this week. But I just want to say, you know, we talk about how shitty Canadian media is a lot and talk about how many mistakes they make and just how much they get wrong so often. I just want to give a shout out to every member of the Canadian journalism community that has reached out and checked in on me and I know other Muslim journalists over the past few days. I haven't responded to everyone, but I want to take this opportunity to say that it is very nice to know that there is a caring community even if journalism management doesn't let us, you know, do our best work sometimes. People have fought trolls for me while I couldn't fight everyone. People have muted and blocked. And it is incredibly, incredibly heartening for that support to exist. And I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I'm so grateful. So shout out to them. And um, yeah, that's really sappy for you, Jesse, but you have to duly note it. I'll allow it. Duly noted. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. 
This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. All right. So a Canadian TV spat uh, has made it into like uh, Los Angeles newspapers, Variety, Hollywood Reporter. I speak, of course, of... uh, Actor Simu Liu, who went on Facebook after the cancellation of Kim's Convenience to talk about how shitty the experience of Kim's Convenience was for the cast. And, you know, I thought it was pretty interesting. I like it whenever the circumstances are such. You know, Simu is off to a Marvel movie. I guess uh, the show's canceled. This is where he can talk about the poop salaries that were paid. I think what he said, dog poop? Was it horse, horse poop? poop? Horse, horse poop. poop. It was, thank you. It was horse poop salaries for the cast of, a, of like, you know, I don't watch network sitcoms, uh, whether they're Canadian or American, but, you know, I'm a TV snob. This was a popular show, but it was uh, interesting to note that the cast isn't paid very well. He also noted that they had better ratings than Shit's Creek, but Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy, they were paid way more than the cast of Kim's Convenience. And, you know, like there was a lot of... Um, Interesting points that he made about how the characters didn't really have a chance to develop as real people. There wasn't good representation in the writer's room. And then, what do you know, this successful show is canceled, which is like that's what CBC seems to do with successful TV shows that actually achieve their representation goals. Cancel that show. And they're spinning off a new series with the one non-Asian character. The second chapter of this, Fatima, is the TV critic for the Globe and Mail, John Doyle, just like smacks back at Simu. Like, are you kidding me? You think you should get paid? Would Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy get paid? Do you think that you're of their stature? Do you know how many awards they've won? And on the one hand, I know his point that, like, when you're casting a show with new actors, they're not going to get paid as much as celebs. But I think it was, like, a really interesting thing. Like, he didn't really engage with Simu's point that one show was more successful. It's such a Canadian thing that we're going we're gonna to actually compensate elite status above merit, above achievement. In an apples-to-apples universe of our ratings are better than yours, well, then why shouldn't those actors by season five be getting paid as much as the Schitt's Creek actors? It goes on and on. Another actor from Kim's Convenience, Gene Yoon, then smacked back on John Doyle and said, like, if you don't see, buddy, that this is a problem, that there were, like, no Korean writers except for the showrunner who wasn't really the showrunner and we were all asked to be complicit in pretending that the showrunner uh, was the, uh, the original playwright instead of this other guy, there's a problem here. And then it goes on even further, Fatima. Our producer, Tiffany Lam alerts me to the complications, the problems, you might call it problematic, nature of Simu Liu as a advocate for Asian representation 
because he, in his past, was forthright speaking out against Mark Wahlberg, who has this horrible crime in his personal history. I mean, he was 16 at the time, but he beat a helpless Vietnamese man with a stick until the man passed out and then sought a pardon later in life. And Simu called him out for that on Twitter until Simu was in a movie with Mark Wahlberg, at which point Simu deleted that tweet. And I just have to read what Simu said explaining himself for why he deleted the tweet. I signed on to Arthur the King because I absolutely adored the script, which tells the beautiful story of how a dog changed the lives of four adventure racers in the forests of Ecuador. I deleted a couple of tweets I made regarding the past actions of one of my co-stars as a gesture of professionalism. So it does need to be said that it seems that Simu finds his voice when it aligns with his career goals to actually call out anti-Asian racism. And when it doesn't, he deletes things. That's a bunch of stuff that happened. What do you think? <laughs> Look, I love Shit's Creek and I love Kim's Convenience. Uh, they are both fantastic shows. And I think the problem is that CBC or the producers or whoever in Hollywood or the Canadian version of Hollywood funds these kind of shows just put way more money into Shit's Creek uh, because of the star power. And I think we see that play out in Hollywood all the time. But Kim's Convenience deserved that kind of success. It was an incredibly fresh show that was unapologetic about portraying immigrant life through the eyes of a Korean family. I am a Pakistani immigrant family, and I saw myself in them, and I just, I love the jokes, I love the characters, I love the acting, I love the storylines. And the thing that troubles me the most about all of the controversy around its ending is that there were no diverse writers in the room. This is what stresses me out the most. This is what like really worries me about Kim's convenience because Inns Choi, who wrote it, no one's heard from him. Mm -hmm. Like, where is he? I'm really concerned because his silence is actually speaking volumes to me because I'm seeing it as a confirmation that actually it was as bad as Simu and Jin Yoon and everyone else is saying. And that concerns me because how did we let a show that was entirely about portraying one aspect of the Canadian immigrant family life, you know, how did that show get away with no diverse writers and no advocacy and no money and no international success for five years? And then the other thing that gets me is I wonder if Kim's Convenience would have blown up the way it did if it weren't for Netflix. And I think that's a problem that the Canadian production industry needs to really consider because we need to fund Canadian art and Canadian artistic expression. And shows like Kim's Convenience and Schitt's Creek showed how to do that exactly. But the disparity between the two shows is really troubling because that means that we don't exactly have a game plan. We don't exactly know what we're doing. We're sort of like throwing paint at the wall and hoping it sticks and following the same playbook that Hollywood does. But we're not Hollywood. We're Canada. And it's very different here. And I think we need to realize that. I have mad love for all of them and the work they've done on the show. And it's honestly awful to read how it actually went down behind the scenes. Well, isn't it interesting that the spinoff uh, is uh, not just the one non-Asian character gets their own uh, spinoff show, but it's the one character that Inns Choi doesn't own the intellectual property for. Yeah. And that's probably why it's the spinoff show. And so to find out that Inns Choi was somehow showrunner in name only and the cast was asked to kind of like publicly we're going to play along with this because it's really important that we represent that this show has a Korean showrunner when that wasn't actually the case. You know, Netflix 
is actually allowing some Canadian shows to get really, really big around the world. Uh, and you mm-hmm. know, as you point out, it's almost like the problem of success. Like we don't know how to handle that success and, and compensate that success because we're so used to building shows here on shoestring budgets and everybody just sort of being happy that it's their turn to get paid anything. There's a lot of stuff happening under the hood in the economy of making television in Canada that I think we're just kind of hinting at with this. I remember the billboard uh, of Schitt's Creek of David and Patrick, uh, his partner in the show, kissing in Los Angeles and how groundbreaking that was for LGBTQ representation and how huge that was for Canada. I didn't see a similar billboard for Kim's Convenience. I saw it in Toronto, sure, next to the CN Tower, but not in Los Angeles. And I think we have to ask ourselves tough questions. If If the same rules are being applied for the same reasons, which is, you know, racism, let's be real, then we need to correct that ASAP because there is some great Canadian content waiting to be created here from all our communities. And if we don't have the structures, institutions and supports in place to amplify them, to give them success, then we're doomed. Let me tell you something. My grandparents in Winnipeg, European immigrants, ran a little corner grocery store where they didn't hire anyone because their eight-year-old would work the cash register, and they lived on top of it. And here we are, half a century plus later, and there are still no Jews in writer's rooms of comedies. I'm just kidding. It kind of worked out, and I hope it will. (laughs) Dude, now you have to watch Kim's Convenience. After that, telling me that family history, you have to watch Kim's Convenience. (laughs) I'll think about it. That is Shortcuts for this week. Uh, I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com, and I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Fatima, I'm not even going to ask. We know where your website is, but people should find you on The Backbench, <laughs> which is the best politics podcast in Canada. That's where people can find you, yes? Um, I don't know about that, but I will say that our next episode coming out next week is going to be about the 215 kids, and we're we're hopefully going to have the kind of honest, nuanced conversation that we've always wanted to see in the Canadian political space. Might be heavy, but I'm going to learn a lot, and I hope everyone else does, so tune in. To the best politics podcast in Canada. <laughs> this episode is produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capicione. Theme music is by SoCalled. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you want to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, the Backbench included, support us uh, at CanadaLand.com slash join or click on the link in the show notes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.